I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2002. It's with Dr. Sam Chell, a very familiar name and voice to WGTD listeners because of his popular Saturday night bandstand show. In addition to his interest in music and his work as a longtime professor of English at Carthage College, Dr. Chell also has a great interest in cult movies, and that's what we talk about in this interview. I hope you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, we are so pleased to have with us now today on The Morning Show, uh, Sam Chell, professor of English at Carthage College, uh, now kind of a double-decker colleague of mine, because not only are we colleagues at Carthage, but uh, Sam Chell recently began hosting a Saturday night music program here at WGTD called Saturday Night Bandstand, garnering rave reviews, I might add, and, uh, and so uh, we'll spend a bit of time talking about that as well. Uh, Sam Chell, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's nice to be here. The last time you were here, uh, I think we were talking about Mr. Frank Sinatra. You had uh, mm -hmm. put together some kind of uh, report or presentation or research That's about right. him. Uh, re remind me what that was. Well, they call it the Frank Sinatra Conference, and it's a major conference that is held at uh, Hofstra University in, in New York every year, and it's devoted to a a major cultural figure, usually uh, American, and uh, it was Frank Sinatra a couple of years ago, just following his death. Um, and next year it's going to be Bing Crosby, so I've been um, researching Bing and his voluminous repertoire recently. Uh, that's my that's my current project. Um, I think I've pretty much assembled the the complete uh, set of recordings by Sinatra. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm having trouble finding space for them, and uh, I'm going to have to move some of those out to make room for Bing, because uh, <laughs> he has uh, almost uh, an equally impressive oeuvre. And uh, I'm finding out that uh, Sinatra fans and Bing fans don't always get along. There was always a friendly rivalry between the two on radio, but when I go on websites, I often will see some very uh, cantankerous, um, angry kinds of uh, comments um, on the part of the Bing supporters. So um, I may uh, do something with respect to the uh, mutual influence of the uh, two singers, because I, I think they did influence one another. Very good. We should uh, mention for the sake of, of uh, someone out there who doesn't know this, although it's kind of hard for me to imagine that, that, uh, that you have some uh, impressive credentials uh, yourself as a musician, as a, as a well-known uh, jazz pianist in, in the area, performing with the John Bunick Big Band, among other mm -hmm. groups. You uh, perform with your own combo on, uh, on a frequent occasion. Um, tell us a little bit about... Uh, your, your, your exploration of music yourself personally, I assume it began uh, at a very early age. Yes, um, I was a preacher's kid and uh, uh, jazz was uh, sinful as far as my parents were concerned, a uh, Swedish pious tradition and I grew up in Wisconsin Rapids and I just happened to uh, come across a radio station out of New Orleans one night where they were playing jazz and I remember I was in high school at the time that was my first exposure to the music um, other than that the only music was a lot of polka bands uh, in the immediate vicinity and also um, Elvis and American Bandstand hosted by Dick Clark so jazz became sort of my thing it was my personal statement my identity and at the same time I wanted to be able to defend it and that wasn't too hard to do with jazz and Afri African-American musical art forms so I read up a lot on it and uh, 
Then when I got to college, I finally met other real jazz musicians, and uh, going to Augustana College, I would always go through Chicago, and I was um, not uh, too, too savvy about places I shouldn't go in Chicago, so I would... <laughs> Uh, because I didn't know any better, I would go to uh, 63rd and Cottage Grove in Chicago where there was a, uh, a club called McKee's Show Lounge, and that's where I heard the uh, the, the great, great uh, tenor saxophonists, uh, usually accompanied by Hammond B3 organ, but uh, everyone from uh, Sonny Stitt to John Coltrane. And um, I then started to uh, perform um, more and more as a as a pianist, um, kind of a late bloomer. It wasn't until I was in graduate school that I started uh, gigging regularly, and, and that kept up. And as you say, I've played in uh, a number of different kinds of ensembles, as, uh, from big bands to trios and duos to singles. And uh, um, for uh, much of the 70s and 80s, I was even the house pianist in uh, Kenosha at a club that some listeners may remember, uh, the Place Nightclub, which uh, was run by Bill and Josie Andrucci, and where we would have um, Las Vegas-style entertainment every week, and that would always be kind of a challenge to uh, be able to cut their charts without having any rehearsal. Wow. Now, along the way, did you ever play any Chopin? Oh, that's where I got my start, yeah. Uh, I... um, I did have uh, legit chops, you might say, to begin with. My, <laughs> my, uh, my mother started me on piano when I was five years old, and uh, I continued that into uh, college, and uh, the um, piano instructor's frustration with me, along with my rebelliousness, finally led to a parting of ways, and uh, that's when I began to uh, pick up a, a lot of my music knowledge uh, strictly by listening to records and uh, watching some of the other musicians who uh, were playing jazz. And this was at a time before jazz had attained academic respectability and become part of the um, academic program, which I suppose made it all the more attractive to me. Right. Uh, I hesitate to ask such a personal question, but um, what, uh, what is the end of the story in terms of your parents and you and jazz? I mean, did they ever come to reconcile themselves to it, uh, as, uh, as opposed to their their initial uh, misgivings? Yes, uh, they did. In fact, um, my father was affiliated with the Lutheran Church in America, and uh, the Lutheran Church in America had a uh, full-time ministry to jazz musicians, which was being conducted by um, Reverend John Genzel in New York City. And uh, my father went to New York City once when uh, uh, Reverend Genzel uh, took a group of ministers uh, to a number of the nightclubs in New York City. And um, also, I was constantly making him aware of Duke Ellington's uh, sacred music concerts. And uh, uh, I myself uh, gave uh, several sacred music uh, concerts and liturgies, especially in Racine at Holy Communion Church, and my father was able to uh, hear me there. So once I brought jazz into the church, he began to see it somewhat differently, especially when his uh, son was up there in the, uh, uh, in the balcony performing it. Didn't seem like quite such a, a grievous sin at that point. No, no, it was no longer in the, uh, in the uh, cellars and in the smoky nightclubs. Wow. Well, as I as I mentioned, you have uh, over the last two Saturday evenings, I think, begun hosting a, a program here called Saturday Night Bandstand, uh, which I have uh, 
just thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, as I've, Thank I've you. told you before, but uh, I'll say it again here over the airwaves. I think it's been just terrific here in the early going. Um, give us some sense of, of the kind of music that you want to play and, and, and what's sort of guiding you as you put mm -hmm. the program together. Variety, uh, definitely, and um, my uh, model has been uh, jazz where the melody lingers on. I think uh, a lot of times uh, people think they might not like uh, jazz or certain styles in jazz because they, they can't hear the melody. And uh, in addition to that, I sometimes say, whatever you do, make it swing. Uh, so we try to keep the emphasis on um, rhythm, swing, as well as on tunes by some of America's best composers, the Irving Berlins, Cole Porters, Rogers and Hearts, Jerome Kearns, George Gershwins, uh, so that uh, the jazz never goes too far outside the, um, the boundaries of the playing field. And um, I, I'm trying to um, bring in a little bit more variety than, than I hear on some of the jazz shows, and there aren't many on radio. Um, it's, it seems to me that in Kenosha there's a lot of interest in the big bands. When I think of the jazz groups who have come to this area in the 70s and 80s, I think immediately of Stan Kenton and Woody Herman and Buddy Rich and, of course, Count Basie and Duke Ellington, and yet you don't hear a lot of the big bands on radio, so I'm including them. But I, I'm also extremely interested in... Um, the American popular song and uh, some of the chief uh, exponents of that uh, that form. So you're likely to hear the very subtle, um, smooth and quiet, intimate sounds of Peggy Lee, for example. And um, the um, the range is going to be quite quite varied. Sometimes, though, I might do a. a a double take where I'll take the same song performed by two different artists so we might move from a vocal to an instrumental or from a big band version to a piano solo version uh, just to keep mixing it up a little bit and, and try to keep uh, listeners off their toes as you know I could easily do something like the Frank Sinatra show and I don't want to I don't want to do that <laughs> I'm, I'm in fact I've, I'm enforcing a rigid uh, rule on myself that I won't play more than one Sinatra um, tune per per show. Mm. Wow, now that's, mm. that's, that's discipline. That is. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday Night Bandstand airs every Saturday evening uh, from 7 until 9. Right, and uh, I must say that I've, I have always had a dream of being a, a, a jazz jock, you might say, but uh, now that I've tried it and uh, the time really goes by very quickly and uh, I'm still trying to adjust to the things that you do uh, with um, all of the panels and switches. It's almost as difficult as some of the uh, complicated synthesizers that keyboards are expected to be able to program mm -hmm. and play these days, and then getting used to having the headphones and so on. But, but once I get more in the groove, I, I hope to do um, some interviews with local musicians, mm -hmm. Uh, to pay more attention to some of the jazz activities in the community. And I even talked to your uh, engineer last um, week, um, Eric Antrim, about possibly doing a, a live shot or two where we, mm. we would bring a piano and uh, maybe another instrument into the studio. And I guess that hasn't been done, from what I understand, anyway. Not really. Uh, mm. the, the, the closest I can re remember is... Uh, I know Bill Guy once in a while when uh, in highlighting uh, oh, an yeah. Irish literacy event 
would would once in a while bring in some Irish musicians who would do their thing right in the the production room there. But wow, um, but he was a been, fine drummer and um, vocalist himself. Absolutely, uh, the Paul Douglas band. Uh, that would have been that would have been five individual uh, musicians. That would have been some fitting. Uh, the uh, the clowns into the Volkswagen, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I'm afraid so. But uh, I'd love to see you explore all those ideas that you've just uh, uh, listed and, yeah, and, and many more. Appreciate our, it. Our guest today on the morning show is uh, Sam Chell, a professor of English at Carthage College. We're going to move on from his, uh, his new career as a radio announcer uh, to talk about a, a course which he has just concluded, just finished teaching at, at Carthage uh, during what's called J-term in which uh, some students take uh, fairly basic uh, courses and others uh, branch out into kind of more interesting things. But uh, during J-Term, you're, you're only taking one class or teaching one class at that time. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, a class typically will meet for a longer period of time each day, and that allows for some really interesting things to occur. And um, Sam Chell's course for this uh, J-Term just concluded uh, was on cult movies, and what a great idea, and a beautiful idea in terms of J-Term, in that if you have a three- or four-hour class period, that means you can really study movies and even watch them in their entirety if you so choose. So, first of all, tell us about the idea behind the course and, and uh, whether or not you've taught it before, This, mm-hmm. if this was its maiden voyage. Well, I, I, I wish I could claim some kind of uh, credit for having come up with a great inspiration it didn't quite happen that way i think uh, uh 13 months ago or so uh, circumstances were such that i was teaching two j-term courses three hours in the morning three hours in the afternoon and you're kidding i uh, know uh, i'm not and um, the uh, the forum came across my desk uh, which asked uh for the title of a j-term course that we we would be teaching in the following year and with very little time in my hand, I kind of whimsically just wrote down cult movies. Um, and I wasn't even quite sure that I was down for a J-term course. But indeed, I found out a couple of months before January that I, I was down for a J-term course and that cult films was being uh, publicized. So I had <laughs> committed myself and... Uh, that's what you get for being whimsical with forms. Uh, exactly. But uh, fortunately, the whim did grow into a... Uh, uh, magnificent or or um, guilty uh, obsession of mine, and it uh, it it turned out to be a very um, interesting experience. I have, I'm one of those uh, faculty members who who does appreciate interim or J term because of the opportunities to uh, teach in a number of areas that I would not normally teach in, and perhaps there's there's a little bit of deceptive advertising at times which enters into our offering of courses. I just read in the Chronicle of a teacher in New York who uh, offered a course in um, Victorian literature and um, evolution, and no one signed up. Well, you can't offer too many of those courses and and run a uh, college that's uh, at all economically efficient. So uh, he changed the name of the course to Victorian Psychos, and it was uh, colon killers, cycles, and weirdos in uh, Victorian fiction. And uh, then, of course, he had no trouble getting people into the class. <laughs> so we, we think a little bit along those lines sometimes. But I, I, I wasn't that uh, that devious. In other words, I, I did adhere to the implications of the title, cult movies. Mm-hmm. Now, has this been a long-time uh, personal interest of yours? <laughs> Uh, or has it been at all? Uh, 
Um, well, it's it's an unavoidable uh, interest when I. Uh, taught my uh, mainstream film courses, the history of film, uh, film genres, and so on. I of, I've often talked to students who haven't that extra bit of enthusiasm and excitement and passion about film, and frequently they'll talk to me about their favorite directors, and many of those directors are so-called cult directors, especially David Lynch. And um, I have a great admiration for David Lynch myself, so I knew that that would be no problem. On the other hand, when you talk about cult films, immediately coming to mind um, are filmmakers such as John Waters, who is considered to be the, the king of bad taste, uh, and people often associate the film uh, Pink Flamingos with, um, with Waters, um, as well as um, Ed Wood, who is considered to be the world's worst film director, and he, uh, he practically lives down to that reputation. <laughs> Uh, so there, there's some wild, uh, offbeat uh, stuff, to say the least, when you're um, when you're into the the world of, of of cult cinema. We should maybe try to clarify that term uh, uh, for a moment here, because you just touched on one thing, which is that I think a lot of people uh, maybe misunderstand the term a little bit or misuse it, and somehow equate cult films with bad films, or or that cult True. films are are somehow mm -hmm. bad films that that, that mm -hmm. bewilderingly uh, managed to attract isolated popularity somehow, <laughs> which is maybe not quite the, the definition that you're right. operating from. No, uh, there, there's quite a range in the uh, area of, of cult films, as you would find out if you looked at uh, some of the, the lists uh, that are available on the Internet and in some of the cult film Catalogs, uh, cult films range from the uh, from the grandly sub sublime to the uh, grandly inept, um, uh, from uh, the inspired uh, to the uh, just just purely amateurish and, and ridiculous. And uh, cult followers, though, usually have a very strong. Uh, opinions about their film uh, are ver very devoted to uh, their film and they know why they're devoted to it. It's not like uh, we often think of someone who is a member of a cult being brainwashed, but uh, the followers of a cult film become champions of that film, are so devoted to it they will see it hundreds of, of times. And there is something refreshing about that kind of uh, passion and devotion because it is a, a grassroots uh, a kind of um, association that uh, the fan has with the film. The, um, uh, the fan doesn't feel any obligation to like a film because the critics say it's good uh, or because it's the film that is normally taught as part of the canon of great American cinema. Um, so uh, cult cinema uh, always has certain uh, characteristics in common. Um, Cult is a diminutive of the word culture. Cult films tend to be countercultural uh, in several ways. In terms of their content, they take on themes that mainstream cinema will normally steer away from because they're too controversial. They're going to alienate the greater part of the film going public. In addition, they're somewhat countercultural in that they stay away from being the typical formula Hollywood product, uh, the, the sick the slick film that very often is little more than a pitch or a formula idea that has been put together by some clever businessmen who are trying to 
uh, immediately a, achieve a hit and get their 30 or 40 million dollars back three times over. So that means that uh, cult films can be um, films that do have a big budget, but they approach the um, the medium in a a singular iconoclastic way, or they can be films that definitely show the marks of a of a low budget and um, have a uh, amateurish quality about them, but at the same time you can't deny that uh, the person who made this film was really inspired and passionate about the project. I would think one of the interesting distinctions would be that certain cult films are conceived of as exactly that. I mean, that that is or, or, or am I wrong? But I would think maybe some, I mean, the producers really sort of has that in mind, and in other cases, it is sort of uh, inadvertently achieved uh, cult status. Is that fair to say? Or It, it, it is, and, but usually the ones that achieve that status fall into the latter, latter category. Uh, they inadvertently become uh, cult film hips, hits. Uh, and uh, the ones who try too hard to become cult films uh, are for one reason or another rejected by that uh, small, rabid minority. And uh, an example of the latter would be Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. That's one of the furthest out, over-the-top, postmodern kinds of, of films that you, you could imagine, uh, with, with all of the, the violence and the, uh, the psychedelic imagery and so on. And uh, yet, viewers simply could not uh, connect with the film. Uh, Stone was trying to outdo uh, Quentin Tar Tarantino, who had uh, come out with uh, Pulp Fiction, which became a tremendous uh, uh, cult success. Uh, another example like Fargo, the Coen Brothers film, where um, the cult in, in a sense became almost mainstream. But uh, Stone was, was not successful with, with his attempt. I think um, it was viewed as being just too forced and obvious by, by many viewers. Now the whole issue of success, I mean whether or not a cult film is commercially successful is kind of an interesting one mm -hmm. because uh, you're setting up a definition where by and large, the, the, the whole scope of the American audience is not going to uh, embrace a cult film, typically. Yeah. Um, and yet they can be successful. Um, right. It's an interesting question. At what point does a film become too mainstream? Stream? Does it appeal to too many people to be uh, considered a cult? And I suppose that's a question you might address of the most uh, popular cult film of all time. Uh, for many, it is the prototypal cult film, and that, of course, is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that film in itself has a very interesting history. It starts out in 1973 as a musical, which was a spoof of uh, B-horror genre musicals, film musicals, I should say. And uh, then it came to the United States, where it was very unsuccessful as a live musical production. It went back to England, where it was made into a film and uh, using some American actors and actresses, including Susan Sarandon. Then they brought the film over to the United States, and it was a, um, a flop in, um, in New York City. Um, in fact, Rex Reed had this to uh, say about the um, film when it opened in, um, in New York. Um, 
I, well, I, I don't have his quotation here uh, right, at the, right at the moment. Um, call it the, uh, uh, the, the most amateurish movie he'd ever seen, and the uh, rock score was so horrible, he said, that uh, it simply made him want to go out and commit suicide so he would never have to watch another movie like that again. Uh, not too flattering, but... Um, <laughs> The, um, the distributors of the film didn't give up on it. They then sent it back to L.A. And they noticed that a number of the, um, the audience were, were repeaters. And uh, they began to uh, play on that, and it took up residence as a midnight movie. And then it went back to New York, and by 1977, uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show had become a cult phenomenon. So it, it, uh, it was a four-year process for it to, to build. And what we had here was a, a live show, which be started out as a spoof of B-horror movies, becoming a movie, which was a spoof of B-horror movies, which in, an, in fact was a B-movie itself. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, and uh, uh, the um, performances of the movie are, are legendary. It's, uh, I, I think it's an extraordinary event in um, cinematic and dramatic history. A number of critics have tried to explain the original role of theater, that there was never a proscenium which would separate the spectacle from the spectator. Uh, the ancient theater was the theater of the god Dionysus, and um, the spectators, in a sense, were experiencing theater as a total experience of worship, uh, um, as a tribute to the god Dionysus. And uh, you, would, you certainly wouldn't expect that sort of um, interaction to happen between the movie screen and the audience, but that's exactly what took place in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So people would dress up like the characters, uh, this, the motto was, don't just dream it, be it. Uh, Morrison Wells has that quotation, film is a ribbon of dreams. But uh, for the followers of Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, it uh, became more than uh, a, a dream. It became a matter of, of producing the show almost. And uh, there were ten commandments that, w that went along with the Rocky Horror uh, madness. Um, I don't think I should read all of them on the air, but uh, a few of them are as follows. Commandment number one, thou shalt not use Frank's name in vain. That's Dr. Frankenfurter. Mm. And, and the, uh, the character played by the transvestite Tim Curie. Uh, commandment number two, remember Friday and Saturday and keep, keep them holy. That means you go to uh, Rocky Horror every Friday and Saturday night. Mm. Uh, commandment number seven, thou shalt not miss the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Number eight, thou shalt follow the master's ways in body and mind. And number ten, thou shalt always remember to show love for Frank and Furter. Mm. So uh, the, um, the film created that, uh, that kind of um, hysteria, you might say. It was preceded by some other films, though, which would have to include uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, and a very interesting 1932 um, movie by Todd Browning, which became a midnight movie in the late 60s, movie called Freaks. Oh, I've seen that. Ah. Uh, but tell us, uh, tell, tell the listeners about that. That's, that's a movie you can, you can hardly believe your eyes as you uh, right. see these figures uh, mm -hmm. across the screen. Well... Browning was fascinated by uh, circuses, circus people, and especially by the um, 
the uh, freaks who uh, comprise that sideshow in um, circuses throughout the country, and he uh, got to know the, uh, the the pinheads and the human torso, the man without arms and legs, and the skeleton man who had no muscle or flesh, and. He made a film in which he really made no concession whatsoever to their abnormalities. The emphasis was not on how these people are different from us, but it was more on how they are more like us than they are different from us. And um, we uh, see these these people and their daily activities, uh, each of them having uh, problems in love and uh, problems in in the workplace but at the same time coming together uh, to help each other and um, uh, dining together and uh, getting married falling in and out of love and we also see them banding together uh, to help each other against well in this case it's the uh, it's the beautiful trapeze artist who learns that one of the freaks uh, has a lot of money and so she exploits him by marrying him, but once she's married um, uh, to him, she denounces him as a freak and is going to run away with his money. And then the film turns rather horrifying because right. the freaks band together and they go out to uh, to get her. And at the end, she becomes deformed. And the, the message there, I think, is the, once we look at these people as being different uh, from our ourselves we become so uh, deformed in our souls that the uh, the real freak is is the person who had thought himself to be normal and i can easily see why um, the cult film audience is identified with this film because in a sense there was a real affinity between the freaks on the screen and the members of the audience who would go to these movies mm. um, many of them considering themselves perhaps to be um, disenfranchised or countercultural types or nerds or different in, in some way. And um, in a sense, David Lynch's extraordinary film, The Elephant Man, plays out the same kind of theme as we see in Todd Browning's uh, movie, The Freaks. Hmm. What about Night of the Living Dead? What is. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is a little more difficult for me to understand how that fits into this tradition. Sure. Well, uh, Night of the Living Dead, in a, in a sense, is another uh, spoof and send-up of B-movies, just as is uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and uh, like uh, so many of these shows, it was made on a shoestring budget. It cost $15,000. John Waters spent $10,000 for Pink Flamingos. Um, and, and that's nothing, of course, in the world of film, where uh, many films have budgets of $40 million and uh, up. It was made in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, Romero simply had his... Um, cast of actors uh, walking um, around like zombies and uh, on top of that they were um, they were cannibalistic zombies and uh, cannibalism is a theme that is also played out uh, as part of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and many commentators have seen um, 
a, a lot of um, political implications in Night of the Living Dead. It was released in 1968. That was the year of the Chicago conventions. You might say that in one sense that's a year that so much of the unrest and uh, anarchy and chaos of the, uh, of the 1960s kind of peaked out. Um, and uh, the film was one of those films that acquired a gradual word-of-mouth reputation and it finally became a, a midnight film and a, a regular fixture of the uh, midnight uh, movie audience in the, by 1972. Um, and, and there's some other uh, interesting things about the film. It's the first film I can think of where the lead uh, characters, the protagonists, um, African-American descent, his blackness, um, has, has nothing to do with the role uh, mm. that he's playing. He just happens to be a, a black man. Um, there, there, there is no deliberate racial theme in, in the movie. So in some ways it, it's cutting edge. In other ways, when you see it today, it is a pretty crude and, and amateurish film. And despite any uh, s similarities with Alfred Hitchcock, um, th the uh, similarities are more accidental, I think, mm. than artistic. That touches on uh, some of the other films that you have mentioned, like uh, uh, the Ed Wood films like uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's one of them, isn't it? That's right. That's uh, right. You're, you're good. <laughs> that's, you're up on this. Um, and he's not. Uh, that's, that's the question. <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, an, I guess, an infamously inept maker of, of movies. Yes. Of, 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 and and so and Plan Nine from Outer Space, you sometimes see that listed as you know one of the worst the movies worst of all movie time, if not the yes. worst movie. Now that's, I mean, a, a movie can be on a shoestring budget and in some respects amateurish and not necessarily a terrible movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can watch it and just maybe appreciate yeah. its raw power right. and spirit and originality. It sounds like we're in another vein here a little mm -hmm. bit when we start. Talking about people flocking to a theater to watch a movie that right. that that, that uh, everyone would agree is is very poorly done, and that's like kind of a comic relief kind of thing, isn't it, or, or not? Yeah, uh, comic relief. But I also sense that there's a certain em empowerment that um, and uh, protest too that a caught audience. Uh, is expressing there by saying that uh, uh, we're not going to be subjected to all of the um, uh, the consumer analyses and um, uh, the, all of the uh, kinds of box office trends. We're going to take a really bad film and we're going to proclaim it as as one of our favorites. This is uh, this is a bad B movie, and we know that all of you would dismiss it because you think of it as a bad movie, but. We are even hipper than that. We know it's a bad movie, but we know there's something to like about this movie as well. Uh, so it falls into that subcategory of cult that we would call camp. And um, Ed Wood is, in many respects, the movie fan in all of us. Uh, he is the, the um, amateur who has a passion for taking his um, Sony uh, video cam out there and his, his uh, editing program and, and making a movie. Uh, the uh, film director, Tim Burton, really captures uh, Ed Wood in a movie that he made in the middle 90s called Ed Wood. Mm, and about that. in that movie, Ed Wood has a meeting with Orson Welles. 
and uh, Orson Welles uh, bids him to uh, remain true to his vision, fight for your vision. And uh, Welles even says, uh, the studio's trying to make me cast Charlton Heston as a, as a Mexican instead of allowing me to do, to do my, my project, which is Don Quixote. Well, Welles did have to, did cast uh, Charlton Heston as a Mexican in the film Touch of Evil, which became a, a, a cult film. But uh, Ed was a, a very interesting uh, guy. He was uh, an army veteran who was also a, um, a transvestite. And um, he would, um, in, in the middle of making a movie, he had some strange uh, kinds of uh, mannerisms. He would sometimes go off set and he would come back dressed in women's clothing. And uh, that was not a gimmick uh, to try to get the actor's attention. So that was mainly just to relax himself. And throughout the Tim Burton movie, we see Ed Wood watching his own movies and constantly shaking his head in disbelief because he just can't believe at the, the magic that he has created. He can't believe how great his films are. And we as the viewers are also shaking our heads in disbelief for the exact opposite reason. We can't believe how how bad uh, his, his movies are. The, the cuts don't match up. He goes from light to dark. Uh, the dialogue is atrocious. Lines like, uh, that's the way modern women have been throughout the ages. Um, or this, this man has been killed and moreover, somebody did it. Those, those are classic uh, Ed Wood lines. <laughs> And um, the so we can't we can't believe how bad these films are, and we can't believe that he thought they were good. Right, right. I mean, his, but we know he did think they were they were good, and I think that's part of the uh, attraction of the cinema is his great passion. Um, he um, his star was uh, Bella Lugosi. He was just enthralled by Hollywood stars. The problem was that um, Bella Lugosi was dead, and uh, he still decided to use him as a star of the movie. So he had a um, a clone. It happened to be his wife's chiropractor who walked cluelessly throughout the movie, hiding his face behind a, a cape and uh, with uh, scarcely a, a remote resemblance to Lugosi. Uh, but uh, he was entirely sincere in his making of that film. You've touched on the fact that uh, phenomena like Rocky Horror Picture Show involve going to a movie theater and... Uh, just like you go to other, other films, and, and, and I assume some of these other cult films that can be part of the uh, experience. In what way was, if we want to call it the industry of cult movies, changed by the uh, advent of, of home video in, uh, in the mid-'80s? Has that made any difference, uh, maybe blunted the, the, the raw edge of cult films or turned it commercial or in any other way altered them, do you think? Uh, I, I think so. I, I think that the uh, Rocky Horror Picture phenomenon ended the moment that uh, the film was issued on DVD. In fact, I picked up the DVD and I noticed that uh, there are two discs and one of the discs is uh, an extended documentary interviewing all of the actors and directors and producers of the movie and, and that totally misses the point. Uh, the point was the audience. Unfortunately, the film itself does have an alternate soundtrack where you can listen to the audience recite along with the actors each of the lines as well as the counterpointal dialogue. Uh, there are certain uh, responses that were expected to be given whenever a character would appear and uh, certain kinds of actions, whether it was shooting the screen with a water pistol or throwing an, an egg uh, or putting on a raincoat, all that was part of the, uh, the experience of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. At the same time, 
I think because uh, so many people now are uh, locked into the the cocoons of their uh, their their big screen television sets, uh, you're going to find an audience that is going to look for an alternative experience. Um, people would go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, for example, because it was a social event, and uh, uh, they wanted to meet other people with a shared interest. And um, I suspect that um, that need is going to be met by future cult films. And we do have um, cult filmmakers like um, John Waters, who are still active. His um, recent uh, film, uh, Cecil B. De Demented, is a, f a film about a um, group of cult filmmakers who, whose model is seize the cinema, bring, a, bring it back to the people. And uh, they go into theaters that are projecting uh, some of the most obvious Hollywood product, like uh, Forrest Gump and Patch Adams. And uh, they evict the people from the, uh, from the cinema. And uh, uh, Waters has cast Patty Hearst in the movie to make it clear that he's doing kind of a parody of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Mm. Um, but instead of it being a p political uh, kind of controversy, it's, it's a opposition between the mainstream film industry and, and the cult film industry. So in other words, seizing the projection booth. Yes, yes, to show his, his film. Um, the Patty Hearst character in the film is played by Melanie Griffith, who is kidnapped um, by Cecil B. Demented, uh, who is the maker of the independent underground alternative cult movies. And I, th I think too we're we're going to continue to uh, uh, see directors who are um, maverick directors who are out of the mold who can work with a big budget, but who can uh, can resist all of the pressures simply to make money. Uh, I'm really gratified to know that um, Apocalypse Now is considered a cult movie because it is, it is a grand, uh, in my opinion, a, just a, a grand work of art. Uh, one of the the, the great uh, examples of American cinema at its best where uh, a great artist, um, someone like Coppola, who had produced the Godfather pictures, um, is able to take all of that experience and technique plus the passion and give it all to what finally is being recognized as the great film that it is. And uh, the, the same would be, have to be said of, of David Lynch. And uh, a film like Blue Velvet, I think, is going to be recognized more and more as uh, a truly unique uh, film, and, and a film, moreover, that does make sense, that takes us places that other films um, uh, don't, don't normally go. At the same time, I don't want to suggest that cult films are that radically different from some of the mainstream product. I think that uh, cult filmmakers tend to make more explicit the same kinds of uh, th themes and subject areas that you can find in the mainstream movies of Alfred Hitchcock and uh, even Frank Capra. Uh, Capra can certainly go into the dark side of, as anyone who has seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life knows, and so can Hitchcock. And sometimes I think uh, it, it's almost more admirable to see a director who is inventive than one who is overtly creative, if that makes any sense. Mm. Hitchcock touches the same nerves that Lynch does, namely the voyeuristic, uh, the fetishistic, uh, some of the sadomasochistic uh, drives, but he does so in covert, subtle ways. So we become lured into that uh, 
uh, spectacle that um, fascinates Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly in, in Rear Window. And at one point, uh, Grace Kelly becomes more aggressive in her voyeuristic activities than Jimmy Stewart. And she says, boy, uh, aren't, we, aren't we ghoulish? But uh, then she quickly casts aside any doubts that she has and, and continues with her pursuit. That's the opposite of what occurs in um, Blue Velvet, where Laura Dern wants no part of that kind of voyeuristic um, activity. It's interesting how some of these films have a real kind of juvenile uh, edge to them. I mean, some of them that are just so unbelievably graphic with vomiting and you know, whatever we want to get into but um now we're talking about john waters right but, mm -hmm. uh, um versus some of these other uh films that that don't resort to to anything like that and seem much mm -hmm. much more interested in in uh, kind of making an artistic uh statement without kind of that uh, what well, seems like cheapness yeah, cheap right. effects on the on the surface at least but maybe we're not being fair maybe i'm not being fair to no i i think that's um my, my ears have had to endure a, a, a stream of continuous profanity, uh, for the, with the exception of the Ed Wood movies. And um, uh, students today r don't bring their interest in, in cult much before 1975. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat gratified to see that Monty Python in the quest for the Holy Grail is still high up there on the list of favorite cult films with, with college students. It sometimes is uh, said that um, uh, young people today don't know the original stories, therefore satire doesn't work. Hence, mm. the Marx Brothers don't carry the cult uh, kind of appeal that they once did. But there is an exception for Monty Python. They seem to know enough about the, uh, uh, the quest for the Holy Grail and the, the Camelot uh, stories to be able to uh, relate to that, that film and uh, to know all the lines. Music is very important in a number of the films, and um, classical music, in fact. Um, we see its importance in a film like uh, Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, which ranks as a, a cult favorite. Uh, Alex responds to uh, Beethoven more completely and is far more sensitive to the surges of emotion in the music than is the mainstream culture, specifically uh, Beethoven's Ninth and Schiller's Ode to Joy. Um, Blue Velvet shows us uh, a diseased, severed human ear at the beginning of the film, and it associates that ear with Bobby Vinton's version of Blue Velvet. Well, the main character then is introduced to an alternative version of Blue Velvet sung by Isabella Rossellini, which is far more seductive and, and alluring. So uh, my theory on that is that it's the eye that is the instrument of measurement. It's the eye which enables us to make rational sense of the world, but it's the ear which leads us to the irrational wellsprings of the inner being, to the world of the Dionysian, uh, to the dark side. And students introduced me to some cult directors I'd been totally unaware of. There's a, an Italian director by the name of Dario Argento, who is the king of splatter films. No one has used more buckets of blood than he does, but he does it in grand opera style, and often he does it in the context of, of Italian grand opera. Uh, his his film opera is based on Verdi's Macbeth, and he plays on this notion that um, performers in that opera have always had bad luck. Uh, performers have 
died on stage even. And uh, in a way, there is a kind of an aesthetics of gore and uh, an aesthetics of spectacle um, that can uh, enable even um, someone with sensibilities like mine to uh, accept that much uh, in-your-face kind of um, violence. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, ask you about a couple of kind of related things. Uh, one of them is, uh, I wonder if you're acquainted with something on the Sci-Fi Channel called Mystery Science. Uh, yes. Uh, mis Mystery Science Theater. Yes. 2000 yeah. and 3000, which for the sake of our listeners who who uh, don't know, it's they, they uh, screen um, pretty poor uh, <laughs> sci-fi movies from over yeah. the years, and yes. there'll, there'll be a couple of figures. You sort of see their silhouettes down in the corner of the screen as though they are in the front row of a theater watching the movie and making all kinds of comments and so on right. on, on the inanity of, of the... Uh, of the dialogue or, you know, terrible special effects or whatever it might be. Somehow that seems like at least a first cousin to some of what we're talking about today. De definitely, definitely. And Mystery Science Theater does come up, I've noticed, in some of the discussions of, um, of, of cult movies. It's an example of the, the democratic nature of, of cult films and uh, the sense that uh, the spectator is not simply the passive consumer who is being duped by what's on screen. Um, the, uh, the cult film fan uh, has a great love of, of uh, those kinds of B-movies because they are so obvious and at times uh, so stupid and amateurishly done. And um, that show happens to show us that kind of interaction that occurs between the spectator and, and the spectacle. Um, for anyone who's interested in, in cult films, most of the literature on it is, is, is kind of the, uh, the collector mentality, catalogs of movies. Uh, I found one book which uh, is quite scholarly, and it gives the modern history of the movement. It's called Midnight Movies by John um, Hoperman and uh, John Rosenbaum. Mm -hmm. Now, when your students uh, came into this class, by and large, did they come in as fans of cult movies and each of them with their favorites and so on or did you have any neophytes who really had to be introduced to this uh, from square one actually i think uh, i did have a number of students who thought i was going to be doing um, a class about um, jim jones or charles manson oh really uh, who who uh, thought that uh, cult movies meant it was going to be a film about um young people who had been brainwashed into becoming part of a cult. And uh, I did have a number of students who hadn't heard of, uh, of, of John Waters. And um, certainly many of the films that I, if I were to have chosen the films myself, uh, were not familiar to, um, to students. Uh, Dr. Caligari, for example, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, could be called the first cult film because it... Uh, it did have a long run of seven years. Um, this was a, a, a German film uh, which was made at the time when Americans were strictly going to the commercial um, westerns and swashbuckler films, uh, Rudolph Valentino and Douglas Fairbanks and so on. Um, but I steered away from those films. On the other hand, uh, students, as I indicated, um, were aware of a number of films which um, I hadn't heard of. So it, it was a mutual learning process. And um, during, during the uh, course, I think I was also able to uh, steer them to some 
um, directors that uh, you you need not be at all apologetic about if uh, one would be, of course, um, uh, Coppola's Apocalypse Now or Kubrick's uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, and uh, the films of David Lynch, um, The Elephant Man. Uh, all of these are examples of, of transcendent cinema. So uh, I, I hope uh, they learned uh, um, uh, quite a bit about cinema and uh, some of the, uh, the high watermarks of uh, American cinema as well as cult movies and their audiences. Mm. Did you end up watching these films in their entirety in the, through the course of a class? <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, did you watch something like Plan Nine from Outer Space? Oh, start yes, to yeah, that one. That one we made it through. Um, <laughs> I um, I thought it better to uh, allow students to read about John Waters and to see some of his films. And I, I did have to think to myself, now, uh, is this a movie that I could justify to my own parents? I talked about my problems playing jazz earlier in my uh, in my home. Uh, could I justify it to my own parents, uh, let alone their parents? And in some cases, like uh, uh, John Waters' uh, Pink Flamingos, I thought, no, nah, no, I, c I couldn't do that. So we didn't see that film. We did watch uh, uh, much of Crumb, but, um, you, you know, there's a document documentary called Our Crumb, uh, which is about the um, animator who is responsible for Fritz the Cat. Uh, Our Crumb was kind of a, um, a Howard Stern with talent. And uh, <laughs> uh, and his his cartoons really are 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 quite offensive, and uh, I uh, uh, I did stop that movie after a point um, when I heard um, a, a few, few too many protests, especially from uh, some of the uh, women students. And um, let's see, there were um, well, I also sense that um, Apocalypse Now and. Uh, Clockwork Orange were uh, were heavy films, so uh, we broke those up and watched a part one day and talked about it, and then we went mm. to the second half the next day. The last third of uh, Apocalypse Now can especially be uh, puzzling if you're not um, prepared for it. Uh, and it, maybe it's a little bit pretentious. Um, Coppola makes a lot of references to uh, the poetry of T.S. Eliot, for, for example. But at least knowing some of that in advance does help you to make sense out of the film. Right. We've talked about cult films. Is the cult phenomenon very common in other areas of, of culture? To what extent uh, is, uh, does literature attract cult following or uh, other, other uh, do playwrights have cult following or is or is this something if not completely unique to film uh, at, at least somewhat unique to, to to the realm of film well we, we hear so much about the postmodern uh, culture in which we live and uh, that always implies that uh, so much of our so-called reality consists of images and we no longer have the uh, intensively reading uh, public that we once had. So I think that what you're implying there is to a great extent quite true, that it, it does apply more specifically to music than um, any other form. Uh, during the uh, 1950s and early 60s, of course, we had the counterculture of the beat generation, which 
uh, did produce a, a rather impressive body of, of poetry and uh, in fiction. And um, during the 1950s, in some respects, you could even point to um, Elvis Presley as a counter-cultural sort of figure. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that uh, a number of my students would point out all sorts of alternative rock bands and uh, bands that are considered to be against the norm, but uh, frankly, I've, I can't always tell the difference uh, <laughs> uh, between one heavy metal band and, and another to tell you which one is mainstream and which one is, is alternative. Um, so I, I, I'm perhaps not the best person to ask about that uh, particular area. Hmm. The the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because it, in some ways it's what intrigues me the most, I had the pleasure um, this past fall of uh, going up to Milwaukee and experiencing the sound of music at the Oriental Theater. I don't know if you've heard of this, but in very much the same format as the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This apparently is a, a huge phenomenon over in mm -hmm. England, although it started out as just kind of a one-night stand sort of thing, but uh -huh. became incredibly popular. And in various cities here in, in, in America now, the sound of music will be screened and people will dress up as various characters in the sound of music, you know, brown paper uh -huh. packages or <laughs> tea with jam and bread or whatever it uh -huh. might be, singing along with the songs and booing when the Nazis are on the screen, hissing when the Baroness is on the screen. Uh, coached uh -huh. to yell certain things at, at the screen at certain points in the story. Amazing. Uh, They're not herding sheep into the theater. No, they, no. They, no stormtroopers. No, 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 no but nothing like not that quite. happened. That but, may, mm. but I mean, uh, and, and, and every seat was sold in the Oriental Theater, and uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just an absolutely electrifying night. Um, Incredible. But, but with the sound of music. Yes. I mean, one of the yeah. most uh, popular mainstream films that, that there ever was. But to me, it's very intriguing to think about uh, the world of cult filmdom yes. and, a, and a blockbuster like The Sound of Music, you know, v v as G-rated as it gets, uh, somehow coming together. That, uh, that, that's, that's a little bit disturbing. I, I, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's one thing to use uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show for uh, uh, having a party, but uh, to do that to Robert... To, uh, um, Rogers and Hammerstein is, I find, a, a little bit disturbing. Uh, um, why couldn't it be The Lion King, for example, mm. or some lesser musical? But um, maybe I don't quite understand the audience and uh, what their motivation is. Well, and it's interesting. No, I, I think it was done with great... I mean, that was my sense anyway, that it was done with great affection for the film mm -hmm. and that the people who came to that came with great affection for the film but also mm -hmm. aware of certain places in which maybe mm -hmm. the film just goes over the top a little bit. Um, an usher who had been to it in Chicago said that she enjoyed it more in Milwaukee because they were actually a little more respectful. And there were certain mm -hmm. moments in the film when it gets to be the really scary moments of the Nazis in pursuit where, where you could hear a pin drop. I mean, people were really watching that mm -hmm. movie, but just experiencing it mm -hmm. in, an, in an entirely uh, different way. Did the uh, audience theatrics spill across the movie so that it, uh, there were um, pantomimed performances before and after the film itself? Which, uh, or no, was it all during the film? Pretty much all during the film, although they had kind of a parade of costumes beforehand mm -hmm. and people were, were brought up on stage and there are many, many little children in the theater and you know, 
Manny dressed up as all kinds of, of, of different things, and then uh, mm-hmm. we were given little uh, explosive poppers to pop the moment <laughs> that Maria and the Baron kiss for the first time out in the gazebo, but uh-huh. other people in the audience at different points would you sure. know, do that, and shouting out different things at different points, and I, and for me, the, the, the most exciting moment was the scene where Maria has just asked for fabric to make clothes, play clothes for the kids, and the Baron has turned her down, and as she moves back to the... Uh, to her to her chair by the window. We were told before the film started now, and remember all of us, you have to scream at the screen, you know, look at the curtains, Maria, look at the curtains. So there we are, I mean, 400 of us, 500 <laughs> of us, screaming for Maria to look at the curtains, and then, and then she just kind of lackadaisically, absentmindedly does so, and you feel like you had something to do with uh-huh. making that happen. Uh, maybe sometimes we feel such great love for a film, and, and I know there are some films that are our cinematic world in which I exist, Robert Altman's mm. Nashville and, and Apocalypse Now uh, and uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, that World War II movie, that I, I just don't want to leave that world. And this is one way of expressing uh, that, uh, that, that part of where I live. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it, you feel, uh, or I felt anyway, like something very... Mm-hmm. Uh, fundamental, and almost you, primeval, was being touched. Now you're getting to the Dionysus, and you you understand cult films. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's thanks to the guests that we had today on the morning show. Sam Chell, we thank you so much, and it sounds like this was an intriguing class that you hope to teach again. Uh, very possibly. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, we're certainly glad that you uh, came to uh, join us to, mm-hmm. to tell us about it and to kind of pique our curiosity about this whole world of well, cult you've, films. You've piqued mine as well. Uh, all right. And uh, we want to remind listeners once again of of your uh, new program that airs every Saturday night between uh, 7 and 9 o'clock called uh, Saturday Night Bandstand. It is mm-hmm. a wonderful program, even in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so we encourage everybody to be listening. Sam Chell, we thank you again for coming and joining us on the morning show today. My pleasure.